Father, first I pray for the believers in China and anywhere else in the world where they are in a desert, where they don't have the word. Help us to appreciate the word that you have supplied for us and given to us, that we might not consider it a small thing, but we might pick it up and use it for your purposes. And may it just fill us with joy and insight and understanding and give us wisdom as we live in this life as the book of Proverbs that we just read dictated. It's good for our bones. It's good for our health. So, Father, as we get into it this morning, we ask that you would help us to make or make us more aware of where we are, what we believe, and why we believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing of that eclectic mix is how close do you think we are to the rapture of the church? Now, theologically speaking, there isn't anything that really has to take place prophetically before the rapture happens. But there are several things that have to take place before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as I was doing some sitting this week and I was listening to some people, they were talking about the rapture of the church being a secret rapture. It is not a secret rapture. And that would be some from the reformed end of Christianity, some that don't believe in the rapture at all, or some believe that the rapture is going to be in the middle of the tribulation or right at the end before the wrath of God starts. They believe in five and a half years. I hold to the the idea that the wrath of God begins with the breaking of the first seal in the book of Revelation, and that releases the rider on the white horse who is the Antichrist. That's when the wrath of God begins. And from that time on, millions and millions of people will be killed. And I believe that that is God acting on the human race, using also the wrath of Satan to carry out his judgment upon the earth. And we are told to watch for these things. At least three times in scripture that I can give you. Matthew 25, 13, Mark 13, 35 and 36, and Luke chapter 21, verse 36 says, we're to watch be watching for what takes place. I am constantly watching what comes across the news in order to buttress my beliefs in the Bible so that I might communicate it to others and get a feel for how close we are to the end. We also know that the end before the coming of Jesus Christ It's going to be like in the days of Noah and Lot. This is referred to in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, and also in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 29, and I'm going to read that to you. It says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day of, of the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So what it's referring to here is the regularity of life. Everything that we are doing today, it's going to be just like that when the Lord decides to come and get his church and it's the beginning of the end, you have the seven-year tribulation and the millennium after that. And in Mark chapter 13, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 13, it talks about the mark of the beast that you won't be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark. Now, I don't believe we're going to be faced with having to receive the mark. 
But do I believe that we will not be able to buy or sell unless we have some type of identification? They already tried to do that with COVID. Where you had a COVID pass, you wouldn't be able to fly or buy a plane ticket with that. You couldn't go into certain stores unless you had a mask on. You wouldn't be able to buy or sell unless you conformed to what the government said you had to do, local and state and also federal governments. And is this happening anywhere? Well, you know that there is the push for crypto, uh, the crypto monetary um, exchanges that are there. They, they want you to use some type of electronic funds transfer personally where you don't use cash anymore. I'm finding myself more and more using an electronic form of payment rather than cash. Although I carry cash and sometimes I use cash, for the most part, it's swipe a debit card or swipe a credit card, right? You go in and you don't have to carry any cash with you whatsoever. How close are we to that? Well, as I've stated previously, Biden has formed a group of an advisory committee to look into the United States having one. Well, in Australia, and you can look up all kinds of articles in Australia, in 2021, they said in three years, it's going to be almost fully implemented. And they are about 90 to 98% there. If you go to Australia or New Zealand, it's cashless. You don't really use cash down there. And it is coming to the rest of the world. And we know that that is the precursor to getting a mark on your right hand or on your forehead so that you can buy or sell. So how close are we if this plan is being implemented? Nothing like this has ever taken place in history before where you had to have some type of identification in order to buy, even going to the grocery store. You have to be in the system in order to participate in buying and selling. Well, we also know that the earth is going to be corrupt, or that word means ruined in the Greek, and it's going to be filled with violence in the days of Noah. All you have to do is turn on the news, and you see the amount of violence which is out there, especially with all the illegal aliens or what the media calls the migrants going into different countries. I just saw this clip of Diane Sawyer doing a filming for 60 minutes. And she went to Sweden to try to get a story that would depict how the migrants are folding into the culture and society in Sweden. And the police were walking with her and the film crew And they were filming the different migrants, quote-unquote, who were there in Sweden. And some of them were just really happy. And they're saying, well, see, they're just folding into the society and everything's going to be fine. As soon as the police left, up showed these other migrants with hoods on. And they were covering their face. And they started to attack the film crew. And the film crew got it filmed. They were going after the boom mic guy. They were going after the cameraman. They they were just being violent for no reason whatsoever. And Diane Sawyer saying, you don't have to do this. You know, we're being nice. And they kept on attacking him. And then you see a guy like in a four-wheel scooter for some of the handicapped runs over the guy who's the most violent. And it's just, it's like breaking loose. And they're just filming something for 60 minutes to see how everybody's getting along. And they're not getting along. And that's just one anecdotal case, but it's not just my perception. Just turn on the news. Everywhere, there is violence throughout the land, and that was a characteristic of the days of Noah. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, how many righteous people were there before it was destroyed? 
Uh, you had Lot and his family, and his wife turned into a pillar of salt, and it was him and his two daughters, and that was it. That's all who escaped. There weren't even 10 righteous people. If you started to think in your mind, how many righteous people are there in the world as opposed to the unrighteous? Well, you have the church, and the people in the church who believe in Jesus Christ are declared to be righteous because they're believing, they have faith in Jesus to save them. The rest of the world, which is much more numerous, is unrighteous. I saw this other video clip. Some guy decided to go out, and and I don't know what city he was in, but he was recording, and you saw his mic every once in a while. You never saw him, but he was going up to just strangers, walking down the street, and asking them the question, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And he got to like 50 people, and not one of them said they believed in Jesus Christ. And that's the way the world is going. You know, Jack Hibbs, I told you that he's had a prayer before Congress. I think it was uh, January 30th. And he just got total amount of flack because he named the name of Jesus Christ. He talked about the Father. He talked about the sins of the nation. 26 members of Congress wrote this letter just saying he is not fit to come and ever say a prayer. He was put on, Patty just told me this morning, a no-fly list to Washington, D.C. He is not welcome in Washington, D.C. Wow, they, they really don't want God represented in the nation's capital. And if you go to the monuments, God is everywhere, all over the monuments. You look at the Constitution, you look at the Bill of Rights, all of that, it talks about God. And yet now, God is not welcomed in the nation's capital. So you see the tide where it is going. Institution that God had set up and ordained, like the government, the church, and the family, what's happening to those? The government, it seems like across the country, not completely, but across our country, they're not defending the populace against aggressors, against violent individuals. They're letting them go free. Murders are taking place and they're just getting probation. They're not being incarcerated or capital punishment being carried out. If you also look at the church, the church is dividing uh, we're watching that right now, and the Bible talks about that in Second Thessalonians chapter two, that the apostasy must take place first, the falling away, and you're seeing that in the Methodist Church, in the Presbyterian Church. I'm even going to say that there are some Calvary chapels that I would not recommend people go to. You, you used to be able to say, go to a Calvary chapel. You can't do that anymore. You have to know who you're recommending, even in the system that I've been a part of for my almost my entire Christian life. And then there is the family. Is the family under attack? No longer does it take a two-parent household. It it transgressed into this. No, it takes a village. Now it takes a community, and there must be indoctrination. And they have the power of raising your children, and they don't have to tell you what they're doing or how they're influencing them. So everything that God has set up in the institution of marriage, it's gone. Those things are going by the wayside if they're not already gone in this country. Well, what about um, the idea of national sovereignty? Who set up nations? God did. God said, I have set the boundaries. I have made their corners. Acts chapter 17 talks about this and also Nehemiah. 
God is the one that sets up the nations. He wants the different nations. He wants the different races. And all of that's good. Whether you're in Japan, God said, this is going to be for the Japanese. This is going to be for the Chinese. This is going to be for Kazakhstan over here. This is going to be for Spain and Italy and France and Belgium and Norway and Sweden. This is the United States, South America, Bolivia, Uruguay, Paraguay. All of those countries, Canada, United States... It's all set up. God said, these are going to be the nations. What's the move of the world today? No borders. Take it all away. So you have the government. You have the family. You have the church. You have the nations. They're all being obliterated. And the morality that's in the Bible, what's going to that? What's happening with that? It's going away. It's not like it was back in the 50s and 60s and even the 70s where it started to change. I believe the 60s and 70s saw that change starting to come in. Well, what about the Jews back in the land? What about that? May 14th, 1948. That happened. And you're going, okay, well, that's significant. It talks about that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that they're going to be back in the land. So you see all these things happening. You see all these things falling into place. Are they getting ready to rebuild their temple? Yes, the plans are already made. They, they are already set to do that. What's the final thing that they had to have in order to do it? The red heifers. Have you guys seen this in the news past few years? They haven't had a red heifer that is necessary to be sacrificed and use the ashes and mix it with blood in order to purify somebody. Like if a priest became unclean because somebody in his household died what could happen was they would take this water that was containing the ashes of the heifer and some hyssop and they would mix it all together and they'd sprinkle it on the person and that person would no longer be unclean and they'd be able to participate in ceremonies. Well, they also used that same water to purify the temple or the tabernacle. Guess what's coming up in April? The Passover is coming up in April. I think it's April 30th that it's coming up they are thinking about and they already have the property purchased and the places ready to be set up to do the ceremony to kill the red heifers how many red heifers do they have right now in order to carry this out by the way they haven't had red heifers since the first century and the priest tried to find the ashes so they could use it you know there's all kinds of excavations going on in the temple mount they tried to find the ashes of the red heifer so that they could carry out this ceremony and cleanse the temple mount in preparation for the temple well right now last year they brought over five red heifers and the, the rabbis have added to the requirements for the red heifer. Like you couldn't have more than two hairs coming out of any follicle port in the red heifer that had more than one or uh, black hair or one white hair. It had to be totally perfect. And the Jews added in the Mishnah and the Talmud that uh, requirement. That's not what the Bible says, but they added to it. Well, right now... It's either three or four out of the five that they still have that are qualified and they are of age to be sacrificed. And they have this land over in the Mount of Olives, two plots of land that they have ready to sacrifice these red heifers in order to get the ash to cleanse the temple mount to build the temple. This has never happened since the first century. And now it's here. And if those three or four don't qualify, they have like 16 or 17 more in Texas ready to go 
So how close are we? (laughs) We're getting close. Now, they've talked about doing this with the red heifer, sacrificing the red heifer and burning it up and getting the ashes and creating the the purified water. They've been talking about this and maybe doing it publicly. And now they're pulling away from that because if they did that publicly, what would the Arab world do? Their hair would catch on fire. Like, what, what do you think you're doing? You think you're moving forward and you're going to build this temple? And by the way, October 7th, where Hamas came in and they attacked the Jews, partly because they brought the red heifers to Israel. You can find these articles that talk about this. That they're preparing to build the temple. And Hamas wants to say, no way, no how is this going to happen. And the Jews are moving forward with this. And so come April, I don't think that they would televise it, but I think that they would record it. And they'd be able to come out and say, we have the ashes of the red heifer mixed with water, ready to purify the temple mount to build the temple. And the Jews will go, yay! And the Arabs will go, no! And, and what will happen after that? You know, if they just do the ceremony, what will happen? They're ready to build the temple. And you go to the Temple Institute, they're ready to do it. They have the plans, everything is set up. Everybody's been trained. And so, how close are we to this? Well, and by the way, if you want to look up some scripture on that, this idea of the red heifer, it's in Numbers chapter 19, and also in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, this idea that the blood of the heifers or the ashes of the heifer and sprinkle on those who are ceremonially unclean can be sanctified, set apart, and cleansed. You can look that up on your own. Well, this idea that they've purchased these two plots of land, they have already submitted for the permits to carry out this action, to sacrifice the red heifer. And like I said, it probably will not be public, but... This is our blessed hope. If we see them getting ready to rebuild the third temple, we know that's a requirement for the Antichrist to be in. And it has to be built before he does that. All the preparations are made. And even the final little requirement of the red heifer, it's already here. And it could happen at this particular Passover coming up in 2024. Well, that means that the rapture could be really close. Now, I want to give you this, too, of the rapture. There's something I've been taught for decades about the rapture that I've changed my view on a little bit. You're going, what? He's changed his view on the rapture? What are you talking about? Now, in order to let you know what I am talking about here, first, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And remember, the rapture is our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're looking forward to that. You know, look up to heaven because your redemption draws near. And as you have your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I also want you to put your finger in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, this, these are the two sections of Scripture that talk about the rapture of the church. I believe that there is also Isaiah chapter 26 alludes to it. And also John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am, I may, you may be also. So that, that talks about us going to heaven. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51, 
Follow along here. It says, listen, I will tell you a mystery. And this means it's something that was not previously revealed that God has decided to reveal. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed. Now, how will we be changed? How does this take place? It explains it. You will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's how you will be changed. Now, you following me here? So you will be sitting down in church because you're a good disciple of Jesus Christ on a Sunday morning, and you'll be sitting there going, oh, I feel so overweight, or this guy's going on a long time, and all of a sudden, boom, you are going to be changed. That's where the change takes place. In the twinkling of an eye, it will be instant. If you have no hair, your hair will be full. If you have no fingernails that look good, they will look good. You'll be slim and trim. Your new body instantly will change. So you following me here? Then it says, for the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Where does it say you go to heaven right there? Or the clouds? It doesn't. It doesn't say that. It says, in the flash and a twinkling of an eye, you will be changed. That's what happens very quickly. Now turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. Now in this passage, it says, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So first of all, It's not really talking about the transformation of the body here. It's talking about the travel. We are going to travel from earth to meet the Lord in the air who has come down to meet us, right? Now, I have always been taught, and I have taught, that you are going to be, boom, here one second, there the next second. And so you start doing a search in Scripture. Has this ever happened before where somebody has gone to heaven? It has. There are three examples in the Bible. One in the New Testament and two in the Old Testament. Now, when it comes to this idea of the rapture, I'm going to get to my point here in a minute. There is a lie that refuses to die. It keeps on coming up. That the rapture word, the word rapture, is not in the Bible. And in the English version... It is not in the Bible. But in the Latin version, it is in the Bible. The word rapture is in the Latin, in the Latin version. Or it's in the Bible in the Latin version. And if, if you made that argument, you would also have to make the argument the Trinity doesn't exist. Because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. There was actually one ministry that came out and said, we will give you $10,000. We'll write you a check if you can show us one time, one verse in the Bible out of all the verses that says the rapture takes place before the tribulation. And of course, there isn't a verse. And and they filmed everybody saying, no, there's not a verse that says that. But does that mean that the rapture hasn't or isn't going to take place before the rapture? 
No, excuse me, that the rapture isn't going to take place before the tribulation. It's that drug thing going on here. <clears throat> and, and it is going to take place before the tribulation period because that is a time of God's wrath, the breaking of the first seal and the book of Thessalonians tells us a couple of times we are not appointed unto the wrath of God. So we're not going to be there. So does the Bible teach that the rapture takes place before the tribulation? Yes, it does teach that. But is there one particular verse that says it's going to happen before the tribulation? No. But the concept is still there. The theology is still there. And there was one video clip of a pastor who said that other pastors who were failing to teach their congregations that they're going to see the Antichrist and go through the tribulation, they are neglecting their calling to service of the Lord. And he basically condemned any pastor that would not do that. Now, let's take a hypothetical. Say, I didn't believe in the rapture. I said, we're going through the tribulation. You're going to see the Antichrist. You're going to have to decide whether to get to the mark of the beast or not, whether you're going to lose your head or you're going to conform to the world. You're going to have to make that decision. But if you don't want to make that decision, guess what we have to do? We have to be a prepper, a community of preppers. We need to make bomb shelters. We need to go to the mountains. We need to go to the desert. You need to store up some food, right? How long is the tribulation? And when will it be that he installs the mark of the beast that you can't buy or sell? Well, you're going to have to anticipate that not only for you, but maybe your family members, you're going to need food. How much food are you going to need? Because the grassland's going to be burned up. The water's going to be destroyed. The air is going to be destroyed. You know, the demons are going to be flying around. What are you going to do? And how many guns are you going to get? You know, so think about this for a minute. How many years of food do you need just for you? Six or seven years at least, right? What if you have family members? Well, you need six or seven years of food for you and your family members. But if you're a believer, you're going to share your food, right? You're not going to kill somebody that comes up and wants some of your food. You say, no, it's for my family. Boom! And blow. No, you're not going to do that. That would be called murder, right? And thou shalt not murder. So how many years of food do you need? Well, probably about 20 or 30 years of food for everybody who's going to come to you. Is that what the Bible tells us to do? It's craziness to do something like that. You could go home today and say, okay, pastor said it's coming and we're going to go through the tribulation. I need to start buying all of these dehydrated packets of food and make sure I'm preparing for everybody else and the water filtration and the energy. I'm, it, it's just crazy. Then you're trusting in yourself to save your physical life. And God says, whoever seeks to save their own life will lose it. But ever who lose their life for Christ's sake, they will find it. They will save it. So that's not what the Bible teaches. And those pastors who are saying you're going to go through the tribulation, well, they're just wrong. They're wrong on that. And they can be wrong, and I don't have to disfellowship with them. I'll just say, <laughs> you're wrong. It's not one of those separating issues inside the church. But that's a movement of a lot of the church. Is There either is no rapture or you're going to go through the tribulation period. So I digress here. Our bodies will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. It's not the travel that's going to be done like that. So the three examples of the people that are going to heaven from earth, both in the Old and New Testament, well, first there's Jesus. Now, Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. This is recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what it reads. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. 
and a cloud hid him from their sight. So how did Jesus go up and go to heaven? Superman. And they saw it. It wasn't something that, boom, they're here one second and heaven the next. They saw him travel up to the clouds with their own eyes, Scripture says. Well, we also have Enoch. Enoch in the book of Genesis, chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Now, how do you know God took him away? There's one of two ways that that happens. Either they showed up and, oh, he's not here. Where'd he go? I have no idea. He left for the story and never came back. There's that way. But then somebody could have seen it. What happened to Enoch? God took him. How do you know God took him? Well, the explanation probably, I'm not saying dogmatically, probably would be somebody saw him go where he went up. Otherwise, you don't know what happened to him. He fell off a cliff. He got eaten by a wild animal. We don't know that God took him unless it was witnessed. Now, that's just conjecture, and that's my opinion. But what about the other guy, Elijah? How did he go up to heaven? Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11. As they were walking along and talking together, and this is Elisha and Elijah. Elisha was the servant of Elijah. And he promised Elisha that if he was there when God took him, because God told him he was going to take Elijah to heaven, Elijah promised Elisha if he was there, he would get a blessing. So it says, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. So first we have Jesus going to heaven. The disciples saw him with their own eyes. Elijah goes up to heaven and Elisha saw him with his own eyes. If it comes to the rapture of the church, will people see us go to heaven? It would seem to be the case that they would watch us go up. Now, what a testimony that would be. Imagine you're not going. And first, and I've never thought that the graves would open up. Is there ever a case where God raised people from the dead and the graves opened up? Well, yes. At the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the graves opened up and the people came out. And I'm going, wait a second. People are six feet underground. Are the graves going to open? You know, my family members, my father, my mother, my uncle, uh, my grandfather, they're all buried at Rosecrans. Imagine going out to Rosecrans, and I've been there several times, but imagine going out to Rosecrans and a third of the graves are busted open. And you're, what in the world happened here? What a testimony that would be. And we have scriptural evidence that this has happened before. So the view of the rapture is, well, the classical view is we're here one second, we're in heaven the next second. Well, scripture is doesn't really teach that scripture says that we will be changed in the flash in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the trumpet call of god boom we're changed and then all of a sudden whoop, 
You just go right up. First, the dead in Christ. Now, we're all going to be changed. It seems like we're all going to be changed. First, the dead in Christ, and then us. And then we're going to rise at a rate where somebody will watch you go. Now, it's called the rapture. How quick could the rapture take place? When I was sitting down thinking about this, how rapidly would it be that you would still see it, but it would be fast? And I thought of this analogy. Imagine somebody is driving in a car, not too terribly quick, and they see you down the road. And the passenger in the car is getting ready to grab your shirt, nap of the neck, and grab you and take you away. Now, say they were going just 10 or 15 miles an hour. If they reached out, grabbed your neck, what would happen to you? You would come off your feet, you'd go with the car, but people would be able to see it. And so it would seem to indicate from Scripture that we're changed instantaneously, but then the world witnesses, and we may witness graves opening up as well, and you look in the atmosphere and all these people are going up, you go, uh oh, I hear the trumpet, you know, and I'm already changed. I'm next. Yeah, here we go. And then we go up. And so that's what's different about classically what I have been taught about this. And I heard a teaching on it. I'm going, well, yeah, that seems to be the case. And, and so it makes me a little more excited that not only will we get to experience, not be just taken off guard instantaneously, like, okay, this is it. We're going. But the world will see this as well. And that's my hope, that they'll see it and then they get saved. Because how many people have you told in your circle of influence, your friends and family, that the rapture is coming? You've told them, right? You've given them this information. And all of a sudden, it's on the television. And they say, we don't know exactly what happened, but there are several reports from around the world that graves are opening up and people saw people flying into the air. We don't quite understand what this is. And then the aliens come down and say, oh, it was us. You know, and the deception that however it happens, I just take that with a grain of salt. All right. We don't know exactly how it will happen, but this seems to be the indicator changed instantaneously, but raised in such a way where people will be able to see it. Now, I digress even more. We have covered euthanasia, abortion, orphans and widows, taking assistance from the government, war, self-defense, pacifism, all of these things. And they usually have just one or two verses that give us clear indication of how we're to act and believe and operate in a society concerning these ethical issues. Well, what is our next subject? Our next subject is capital punishment. Because there is a move, and I've talked to a deacon in the Catholic Church and somebody who served uh, communion, who was involved in the Catholic Church, and they would say, you know, if you're going to be pro-life, you need to be pro-life all the way around. That means you have to be against abortion and you have to be against capital punishment. That's the teaching of the Catholic Church. But is that the key teaching of the Bible? And what is capital punishment? Capital punishment is when someone commits an act that when adjudicated deserves to be put to death. Whatever that act might be that the laws of the land have said, you deserve to be capitalized. You deserve to be put to death. Now with that, keep in mind, how many times would something have to be listed in Scripture before we conform our thoughts and actions to those instructions or commands? If the Lord says, do not steal, how many times does he have to say it? 
I remember my father telling me that once. How many times do I have to tell you? You ever hear that phrase? How many times? Just once, you know, he just needs to tell us once. But if he says it over and over and over, like a mom correcting a young child, no, 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 running up to save the child or whatever it might be, we should only have to say things once. God should only have to say things once for us to conform what we believe into the image of what the Word of God says. Well, in the case of the capital punishment, capital punishment was before the law of Moses. Noah was given a command to kill anyone, kill anyone who kills another human being. And also the law of Moses gave several reasons, which we will get to, to perform capital punishment. The Lord Jesus told his disciples to be prepared to carry out deadly force. Now, that is not capital punishment, but there is a reason to kill somebody. Paul let us know that the governments have been given as the authority by God to carry out capital punishment. So first, Noah, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. So that's before the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, there are three categories of capital offenses. First one is civil. Next one is religious. The third one is with sexual sins. And these are the reasons to carry out a capital, uh, capital killing. <clears throat> First one is premeditated murder. <clears throat> if somebody plans to kill somebody else, you're to take their life. This is a repeat of what Noah was told. Kidnapping was also a reason to capitalize somebody, to give them the death penalty. Striking or cursing one's parents. If you had a belligerent son that struck his parents, that son could be taken and given the death penalty. Or another way of phrasing this is incorrigible rebelliousness. They would not be submissive at all. That person could be capitalized. Those are the civil offenses underneath the law of Moses. The religious offenses are if you sacrifice to a false god, according to the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verse 20, you were to be put to death. If you violated the Sabbath, if you didn't go to synagogue on Saturday, if you did not observe the Sabbath, you were to be put to death. If you blasphemed God or cursing God, you were to be put to death. If you committed a human sacrifice, you were to be put to death. If you were involved in divination, you're to be put to death. Now, I'm just kind of curious. I'm guilty of this. Who had an Ouija board growing up? I did. Raise your hand. A few of you. And that means you probably used it, right? That would be enough to get you killed, to use an Ouija board. <clears throat> did you ever play around and try to do seances and stuff like that? I, guilty. You know, we did that. We were always so scared, you know, something was going to happen. But, yeah, we did that. That's enough to get us killed if we do that. Then the last six crimes <clears throat> for which capital punishment could be carried out are sexual sins. Number one, if you committed adultery, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 10 through 21, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. Also, <clears throat> if you went to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 5, bestiality, having sexual relations with an animal, or incest, if you slept with a family member, homosexuality, uh, premarital sex, rape of an engaged or married woman. All of those things would get you killed if you did that. 
Now, as far as the New Testament is concerned, in the book of Romans chapter 13, I'm just going to take it from verse 4. It talks about the government itself. It says, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing, which means he does not have the power to kill for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So governments have been set up according to the New Testament in order to carry out capital punishment. One of their many tasks, that was one of them. So you have before the law, you have in the law, you have after the law in the New Testament times. Is there any room for mercy where you wouldn't carry it out? Yes, there is. And that's up to a judge uh, to extend mercy to somebody who has been convicted of that capital crime. Now, if we don't do this, what does Scripture say if we don't carry out the punishment for a crime as we see it in Scripture? Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God, yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. So there's almost a curse put on the person who does not have the, the judgment carried out against them who has committed a capital crime. And when a capital crime is not carried out quickly, everybody thinks of doing evil things. That's all you have to do is carry out the punishment for a crime, whether it's a capital punishment or it's just throwing them in jail and making them suffer or making them pay back for what they have done. <clears throat> now, going on with this, there was a submitted question that is in line with this idea of capital crimes or capital punishment. This question that was submitted, one of the questions that I've had listed previously the Bible says not to seek revenge, but God has said to strike down some people. Why can't I now not do the same? An eye for an eye. Do you think this might be hypocritical? In other words, God told people to strike down certain groups of individuals. Why can't I do the same? Now, I need your antenna to go up. Because this is theology. And I'm going to give you several points and I would recommend you don't just write them down as I'm doing it. You're not going to be able to keep up. But just track with what I'm telling you. First, or number one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Secondly, there is no one righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Number three, all sin that is out there and we all have committed sin. All sin must be atoned for by the shedding of blood. In the Old Testament, that was atoned for by the shedding of blood of animals. So anyone who commits a sin will be judged and blood must be spilled for any sin that is committed. But those sacrifices were only able to cover and not forgive or remove the guilt of sin. It just covered the individual and when God looked upon the person, the wrath of God was not on the person. Judgment was not on the person because he saw that blood was spilled, but the guilt could never be taken away. When sin is judged, there must be a sacrifice for sin, and that sacrifice must be paid in blood or in a life being given. 
So God, being a just God, always judges sin and carries out the punishment for sin, which is the taking of life or shedding of the blood of the one who commits the sin. So every sin that is ever committed must be paid for because God is an absolutely just God and he judges every single sin for all time in every individual. You see how that works? Now, so God would not be unjust in judging somebody by putting them to death or telling somebody in charge to put people to death. He's not unjust in doing that. He is just. And just keep in mind, we're all guilty. So God would not be unjust in just wiping all of us out. You guys heard uh, the reasoning that is out there. Why doesn't God just get rid of all evil? Well, because he'd have to get rid of us too, because we are evil. And so we don't want him to do that. Uh, Number five. So if God commanded someone to strike down some people, quote, he would not be unjust because he is a just judge. Sin must always be paid for by the shedding of blood. When he says that someone must die, he is just in requiring payment for their sin. He is just in declaring that someone must be put to death. That is why Jesus came and shed his blood. Because when his blood is shed, being the second person of the Trinity, God in human form, his blood is perfect. His blood being perfect is able to cover not only his own sin if he had any, but he didn't, but the sin of every single person on the face of the earth. That's why God had to provide himself as the sacrifice. The only issue with this is we have to receive the sacrifice of Jesus in order to save us from the judgment of the Father. It's like this. You go to a court, you stand before the Father, the Father says, are you guilty of sin? You say, yes, I am guilty of sin. He says, guilty, the life must be taken. And then we hold up to God the Father the sacrifice of Jesus. He sees that and he said, you have been forgiven because of the blood sacrifice that you are presenting not your own but that of Jesus Christ so speaking metaphorically we have to pick up the sacrifice of Jesus Christ present it to the father his hostility is taken care of towards us who are sinful and he says you may live forever those people who refuse to take up that sacrifice and present it before God the father this is metaphorically But we're saying, I plead the blood of Jesus, so to speak. God says, you are forgiven. And he will always judge sin. So, as for in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's how it works. Now, with that, well, can't I go ahead and just carry out this act of capital punishment? No, as I previously stated in Romans chapter 13, only the government can do that. We cannot do that. If we think we're going to get a revenge killing in, that is called murder, we will be judged and we will be sent to hell if we do not accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And if we continue to practice that, even after we say we have committed our lives to Jesus Christ, he says, no, murderers do not be deceived. You will not go to heaven if you continue to murder. 
So no, what, what about an eye for an eye? An eye for an eye still has to be adjudicated. If I poked out somebody's eye, my eye was supposed to be poked out, but not by the person whom I poked out their eye. It had to be by a government agency to do that. You understand? So we, we do not have the authority to become a vigilante to take the life of other people. Only the government can do that. There must be a trial, and there must be at least two or three witnesses. You cannot condemn somebody to death in the Old Testament unless you had two or three witnesses. Now, today we would use circumstantial evidence, DNA, that type of thing, and it can be carried out. Now, what in conclusion here, this idea of capital punishment, if capital punishment is practiced, it actually preserves society. It is a big deterrent against somebody else committing a crime again. And those people who say, well, if you carry out capital punishment, that never stopped crime. Oh, it prevents that person from ever carrying out a capital offense again. They will never do it. It's like uh, sex. You know, people get pregnant. Oh, you, people are going to get pregnant. And women are going to get, excuse me. Women are going to get pregnant, not people. <clears throat> and if they get pregnant, you know, abstinence works 100% of the time. All you have to do is practice abstinence, but we don't want to. And so we make up excuses. You see how that works? You, if you give somebody the death penalty, they will never kill again. Will you stop crime from being perpetrated again by that person? Yes, you will. Will you reduce crime? Yes, you will. You'll reduce crime. And if people don't want to be capitalized, what will they do? I'm not going to do that. Don't kill me. Yeah. You see how it preserves society? And those who cease to practice capital punishment actually contribute to the downfall of a culture. Do you see that happening? I think we do. So walking away from here, these ethical and theological issues, you know, just tuck them in your hat. You know what scripture has to say. If you were to disagree with me, you don't disagree with me, you disagree with the scripture. Unless you can bring to me the scripture and convince me otherwise. And I'd love to be convinced if I'm wrong. I don't want to give my opinion. I want to give what the Bible has to say. And if we do that, we will all be blessed. It will be health to our bodies and life to our bones. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, how it gives us the instruction of doing what is right and avoid doing what is wrong. Help us to hold to these truths and we understand the world will not hold to them. But we trust you that you will enable us to hold to your truths and to teach them to others that it would benefit not only ourselves but those around us, our culture. And with your help, we'll do it. In Jesus' name, the church said, please stand.